people maybe have looked at the success in Virginia over the last few years, and it has been moving towards Democrats more broadly. This idea that it's somehow gone in a couple of years from a state that's pretty competitive to just being non-competitive is just a false assumption. You can't let your foot off the gas ever because that's when things happen and you lose. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Sometimes I like to talk to people who have long experience in regular campaign politics. My guest today is Bruce Sinclair, who is a longtime Democratic campaign manager and political operative. In 2020, he managed Senator Mark Warner's successful re-election campaign in Virginia. Bruce has a ton of experience in statewide races across the country, including running a state party and also many coordinated campaigns. His political consulting firm is called Blue Vanguard Strategic. We had a good talk about his career and his perspective on our campaigns and our politics. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Bruce Sinclair of Blue Vanguard. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Bruce. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, great to be here today. Uh, my name is Bruce Sinclair. I'm the owner of Blue Vanguard Strategic, a, a consulting firm that kind of focuses on field and data and analytics. A little background about me. I grew up in a smaller town called Rock Hill, South Carolina. Now it's kind of a suburb of Charlotte, but it was much more a small town when I was growing up and uh, went to uh, College of Charleston there in South Carolina. And uh, after I graduated from school, my first job was working for the South Carolina Democratic Party, working on the coordinated campaign there back in uh, 2002. Unfortunately, it wasn't a great year for us in South Carolina and saw the election of Lindsey Graham to the Senate. And Mark Sanford as governor really engaged me and grew my interest in politics. And so I, uh, from there, I briefly went to Iowa to work on a presidential campaign, but kind of found that my strong desire was to focus on the South and went down to Mississippi to work. And that's actually following doing the runoff for Mary Landrieu in Louisiana, actually, which was a great, successful win, but went down to Mississippi to work for Governor Musgrove's re-election campaign against Haley Barber uh, in 2003, which ended up being, I think, the most expensive campaign in Mississippi history at that point, and ran a close race, had record turnout, but unfortunately, um, Governor Musgrove wasn't successful in that campaign. And from there, in 04, I went to work for Blanche Lincoln's re-election campaign in Arkansas, was the field director for that coordinated campaign for her and the three incumbent congressmen. And then ultimately, uh, Senator Kerry uh, put people on the ground to compete in Arkansas in 04 as well. And uh, we were able to you know, run a really strong field program and reelect the senator, 
and all three congressmen in a year that was a little bit tougher in red and purple states. Unfortunately, we weren't able to carry Arkansas for Senator Kerry, but had great in-state wins. Uh, let's see, from there, I, I went to Virginia, actually, and was hired by now Senator Kane's campaign for governor. And I helped do the announcement tour throughout Southwest and Southside Virginia. And uh, after that, they asked me to be the field director on the coordinated campaign. And so ran that field program with a great team of incredible folks that year. And we had a, you know, a hugely successful victory for the senator, uh, elected him as governor. I think uh, did a lot of great things and kind of started to kind of lay a blueprint for how we could compete in the suburbs in Virginia in a big way, carried a lot of places that hadn't been carried by Democrats in years following that. And I don't know if you want me to keep doing this bio or. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting. I think it's interesting to see how people develop their careers. Um, I might go back and ask you a few things about some of them, but keep going. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, following the the cane race, I had met uh, in Arkansas in 04, I'd met somebody I thought was a really incredible uh, candidate in person named uh, Mike Beebe, who was the attorney general. And he had actually, I'd put together a youth-focused events to get a bunch of the college kids involved in the campaign back in 04. And the attorney general came and spoke, and instead of kind of focusing on youth issues, he was sitting there talking about a water fight between Arkansas and Louisiana and how he's representing people's interests. And I thought, wow, this is a guy that's not going to just cater his talking points to the audience, talking about the things he thinks people want to hear. Um, and so after the cane race, a friend of mine who had been uh, Congressman Ross's district director, a guy named uh, Chris Maskell, was managing the campaign. And I said, I'd love to be a part of this. And uh, he brought me on to be the deputy director of the coordinated campaign there in Arkansas. We ended up having a great year. Uh, governor Beebe, after 10 years of Mike Huckabee being in the governor's office, took back the governor's office. We swept every single constitutional office and got us up over 70 percent of the state legislature. Uh, so it was a really, really successful year. Great uh, to be a part of that effort. And the governor was kind enough to ask me if I would run the state party after that. And so I became the executive director of the Democratic Party of Arkansas. The whole goal was to spend a year gearing up for Senator Pryor's reelection campaign. And uh, we got to the filing deadline. And uh, I guess it was March of 2009. And uh, nobody ran against Senator Pryor. Nobody ran against any of the incumbent congressmen. Um, so that ended up working out better than we even planned and got the opportunity that summer to go down and be the GOTV director for Senator Obama's uh, presidential campaign in New Mexico, was the GOTV director for that campaign. Um, following that, I uh, joined up with some good friends, uh, Paul Neville and Greg Hale, who run a firm called the Markham Group, and they brought me on board to work with them and continued to work in political campaigns and work on nonprofit uh, activities and some issue advocacy, had, you know, incredible time doing a lot of great projects with them, including passing Medicaid expansion in Arkansas, raising the minimum wage. So a lot of work we did with groups like Next Gen Climate, um, Third Way, um, doing different things like that, but still had the uh, campaign bug. And when uh, Senator Kane was up for re-election in 2018, he was a Nice enough to bring me on to run their coordinated campaign that year. Um, and we had a really, uh, I think, successful year. Uh, a lot of high turnout election. As part of that effort, we were able to help pick up three new members of Congress, three incredible congresswomen in Virginia, and Elaine Loria, Abigail Spanberger, and Jennifer Wexton. And then following that, uh, Senator Warner actually asked me if I would manage his reelection campaign. And so spent most of the last couple of years running Senator Warner's reelection campaign. Uh, 
you know, we had a good year in Virginia last year. Senator Warner actually broke the record for more votes received than anybody's ever gotten in state history. And, you know, President Biden carried Virginia and we kept all three members of Congress when we, you know, we lost some members of Congress in other places. And following that, I started my firm. <laughs> How does it make you feel to summarize all those years of of uh, trial and struggle and success and failure in just a few minutes? It's kind of a whirlwind. You know, you kind of go through these incredible highs and these feelings of, uh, wow, we've done something pretty amazing. And then you think about like years when you had candidates that you really believed in and you just weren't able to get there and what could have been. It's, uh, it's a lot to kind of process in a couple minutes, I guess. Yeah. Uh, let me just take the opportunity to ask you if, about a few of these types of roles. And like, it seems like you've spent a lot of your career in the coordinated campaigns in states, in whether it's, you know, in the field and the, as a deputy or actually running the whole show. I've always heard about the coordinated campaign. I've talked to other people about it, but do you think this works as a mechanism for pulling the campaigns together in a state? What do you think works and doesn't work about that particular organizing feature of our politics? Yeah. I mean, I think what works about it is it's a way, you know, in many instances to pull resources and not duplicate efforts, right? Why would a candidate for Congress and a candidate for governor and senator all be knocking on the same doors at the same time, um, doing things like that, making phone calls, you know, when you could do that strategically? I think when it doesn't work is when there's a failure to communicate across different campaigns and with different candidates and people feel that they maybe are left out or they don't understand the benefit. And I think that having, there's a tremendous benefit of running a functional coordinated campaign that um, really can lift all the candidates. I think that the failures happen when you don't communicate goals early and get everybody bought into what you're trying to do. And obviously you need to listen to people's ideas and people bring new things to the table. But I think if they have an understanding of the overall intent and how it benefits them, it, you can run a really successful coordinated campaign. And personally, uh, I like it because you, the ball's in your hand at the end of the game, right? In a tight race, if you run a really good campaign that really pushes people out, you can help make the difference. If you were going to advise someone who just took the job running a coordinated campaign in a tight state, uh, you know, what would you tell them? I think I would tell them that a couple of things. One, make sure you're communicating the, the entire ticket, not only the top of the ticket, which obviously is a ton of importance, but make sure that those folks feel bought in and they understand how this benefits them from day one. I think that doing that early and, you know, hire the best people you can, people that kind of will do that same level of communication to local party leadership, to local candidates, so that you're having kind of that same information flow at all levels of the campaign. You were an executive director of a state party, which also has a responsibility statewide to the party and to the success in an election. How do you see that role as different and the same to, to you know, a more electioneering role? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the campaign role, you know, you got a definitive end date, right? And it's, it's like you're running a startup and that first Tuesday in November, that startup's either successful or not. Um, you know, with the leadership of a state party, it's much more bringing you know, we have a very diverse party, a lot of range of interests and priorities and making sure that everybody feels like they have a voice at that table. They're heard, their ideas are heard. And it's a lot more, of, okay, I would say long-term relationship building and caretaking to make sure that the party stays strong 
uh, th- there's no end date, right? I mean, you have to keep this going. I think that's the big difference between the two. Do you think it makes sense to have to stand up a coordinated campaign from more or less scratch every time? Or is there a way it could be housed in the state party and sort of, you know, brought back to life? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things we set out to do in Arkansas uh, is that, you know, coming out of the successful 06 race in 2007, we looked at this as, yes, we got to do all the normal party building activities. But we went on a year long training mission, you know, went to every corner of Arkansas. We're teaching people how to use Vote Builder. We're teaching local activists how to write a comms plan, do all these things. And we looked at that as organizing throughout the year so that we had the framework in place for the 2008 coordinated. Uh, we kind of got the best possible problem and we didn't have any opposition. Uh, so we did a lot of that work to not have any big races in the state of Arkansas that year. But I think that that can be part of it. Obviously, with infinite resources, I think it, we would all do that all the time. You worked in so many states and they have, you know, fairly different political cultures, I would guess, from South Carolina, Arkansas, to Iowa, to Virginia. What do you think are the key differences when you look across the states? Like, how would you know quickly that you're in one versus another when you're talking to the political people? I think it's the issue focus and the emphasis. I mean, you go to a state uh, like Arkansas that even though it's mostly electing Republicans these days, has this strong economic populism. They're still voting for things like minimum wage increases. They were the first, I think, Southern state or limited to like, say, the former Confederacy to pass Medicaid expansion. Um, It's a very economic, populist, socially conservative state, whereas you know, in a place like Virginia, it's much more, uh, I think, socially moderate, economically a little bit moderate. I think it's every state's got this unique uh, thing. And I think you can just feel it once you've been there, you know, kind of where you are pretty quickly. You said something about going to work for a presidential candidate and it, almost like it wasn't a good fit for you. Who who'd you try to work for and why wasn't it? Well, I know I went and he was an incredible candidate. I was the Bob Graham campaign um, in Iowa in 04. And I, I spent some time in Des Moines and Ottumwa. And the people of Iowa were incredible people. I just, uh, my heart at the time, and I, I think still to this day, it's really been trying to focus on electing Southern Democrats. Um, and when an opportunity came to do that, it just felt like that's where I needed to be. And that's where I would do a better job and really put my heart into it, honestly. All those years of campaigns, were you tempted to jump off the campaign bandwagon? It's a kind of a grind to travel and and start and stop a career in the way that you do. And I've seen people last only a certain number of years in that role. And I guess to some extent you did, but you kept at it a long time. What was it about it that kept you in it? And and what were you thinking each time you had to get rehired? Yeah, no. And, you know, when I started this, I thought it was going to be something I was going to do for a year or two and then uh, go to grad school or law school or something. When I got out there at first and I was a field organizer and I, uh, I was knocking on doors uh, in this four county area in South Carolina where I grew up, um, which includes uh, for anybody who's seen the, uh, that, that show with uh, Kevin Spacey, the, the Big Peach, um, that presidential show, but Gaffney, South Carolina, which is in that. But uh, I got out and knocked on doors and, you know, I knew that there was poverty where I grew up, but I saw some pretty abject poverty. And, the thought that this doesn't make sense, that there are people living, and that we got to have a 
better way to lift people up. And the fact, the fact that through politics, we can offer these opportunities to lift people up. It just, uh, I think something that stuck with me and, you know, it was tough those first couple of years. It was bad times for the democratic party in that 02, 03, 04, really, you know, hard losses. You could see incremental progress. And then when we got that win for Senator Kane to become governor in 05, it's like, you really felt like, wow, we're going to really make a tremendous uh, impact here. And I just think it kept driving me to do it. Why the Democratic Party for you? And have you ever had any doubt about it? I uh, I believe it is the party of opportunity. Um, I, not that, you know, that there aren't great Republicans. There certainly are. But to me, the opportunity that everyone gets a shot, you know, we don't necessarily get equal outcomes, but we should have the quality of opportunity to succeed. And I think that that's what the party stands for. And it's something that I believe in very much. It sounds like it was the Markham group that, kind of housed your talents for a while uh, before you got back into running campaigns. Tell me about the difference between kind of doing politics within a group like that versus directly working for parties and candidates. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're with a consulting firm, obviously you have to take on a range of different projects. Um, whereas, you know, obviously working for a candidate or that state or national party, you have a sole focus. And I think you have to learn to balance like multiple projects at the same time, you also, you know, you have to go out there and get business and find new projects to work on. So it's a definitely a different uh, feel. I mean, I was fortunate that within the firm I worked for, we got to do a lot of really incredible projects, you know, like Medicaid expansion in Arkansas, like raising the minimum wage, the kind of projects that I would want to work on on a campaign. Uh, but it's just definitely different because you're, you know, constantly trying to find new projects to work on and balancing doing multiple things at the same time. How big was the Markham Group? It's about 20, uh, 20, 25 employees. You've started your own firm. Is that a model for you? What do you want your firm to be known for? You know, I think that definitely a lot of the things that we learned there and I continue to work with those guys on a lot of things. But, uh, you know, I liked the, the idea of taking a data and analytics approach to campaigns um, and, you know, grounding it with, I think, real world kind of expertise on the ground knowledge. I think that marrying those two things up is so important. You can be so driven by the data and analytics that you sometimes kind of don't see what's right there in front of you. And I think it's like balancing those two things to make smart decisions, but that the numbers drive you to, but also with what your knowledge of the climate on the ground really is. I want to hear about the campaign manager for Warner's, the time doing that. Like, how did you get that job? How did it feel different than other jobs that you have, because that's a pretty high profile uh, race. That's a pretty important job. You're kind of like, you're going to get noticed by the press in a different way. You're going to, you know, I'm sure the stresses are pretty high. You're kind of out there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a different role than uh, say running a coordinator, which is much more kind of internal part, you know, if you deal with leadership in the party, but less so the press. Getting the job involved, sitting down and talking to the senator and having some long conversations to make sure that some of my ideas fit with how he wanted to run a campaign and that, you know, I could, uh, you know, make sure that I focused on some areas that were really important to him. And I think that we had great conversations. Senator Warner is somebody who's focused on every single corner of Virginia. And it wasn't for him about running. You know, there's a way to run a campaign where you're just going for 50 percent plus one vote for Senator Warner, it's like, we need to be talking to every single corner of Virginia. I want to compete and represent all these people, but I want to work to win all these people. And uh, I think we had great conversations. Obviously, there was a 
a little bit more high profile and dealing with the press and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's really similar in that you set out a game plan. You make sure you try to your best to stay to that game plan from day one. And you, if you do that, you can handle the hurdles that come that you're not expecting because you, you're not jumping from crisis to crisis. You're like, I've got to go from here to here and this is how I'll get there. And if I have this plan in place, I can you know meet these hurdles that I'm not expecting because I've got a big picture plan. He had very nearly lost the last race, uh, kind of in a surprise. How much do you think that affected the way he approached 2020? I think that he was very focused on not having a similar outcome. I think he wanted to work every single day to make sure that it was as, we could win by as much as possible, not only for him, but also because he realized that if he ran strong as the statewide leader of the ticket, it would benefit the members of Congress that were up for re-election in tight races. It would benefit you know, in the national ticket once we had a nominee. And so I think we set out, you know, more than a year and a half out to start building the strongest campaign he could. How did you think about the Trump influence on that campaign? You know, I think what we saw in Virginia over the last few years is President Trump motivates both sides, right? We saw record, I think, Democratic enthusiasm in Virginia, for sure. And you saw it in, you know, Governor Northam's win in 17. We had an incredible turnout in Senator Kane's reelection in 18. But for all that, he also had the same effect on a large swath of the Republican electorate. We came out of 18, where Senator Kane won by a wide margin. He'd gotten more votes than anybody in a non-presidential year in history. But his opponent, Corey Stewart, at the end of that campaign, had the fourth highest vote total of anybody who had ever run in a non-presidential year. So it wasn't solely mobilizing Democrats. It was both sides. And Stewart's sort of an outlandish figure in a lot of ways, right? He is. I mean, he is definitely uh, takes some extreme stances. Um, I don't think he fits with some of the other Republicans that have run statewide in the past, like a McDonald type. Um, but he was still able to mobilize a large swath of the electorate to turn out in a non-presidential year. Do you understand the appeal of Trump to the Republicans in Virginia? One of the projects I worked on um, in 2017 was a third way, um, as you're probably familiar with the centrist think tank, undertook this uh, effort where they traveled to swing districts around the country. And I was working with them through the Markham Group and helping set up a lot of these conversations, plan the logistics and listening in. Some great folks over there like uh, Matt Bennett and Jim Kessler and Nancy Hale brought up over and over again. It's this sense that people felt that they weren't being heard by D.C. And I think that something about Trump, uh, President Trump, definitely animates a slice of the electorate who feels like they haven't been heard. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but he definitely mobilized a lot of people who felt like they weren't being heard. What do you think they're hearing from him that they're not hearing from us? A lot of it is this idea that people aren't talking directly to them uh, about, about issues that you know, things that they are concerned with. I, I don't understand the appeal, honestly, 100%, but I do feel like there is a slice of the electorate that feels like neither party was talking to them directly for a long time. And, and some of the things that he said obviously resonated with some of those folks. When you watched those people in swing districts talk about it, what did you see them saying? Is it stylistic? Like he is willing to be politically incorrect in how he speaks? Is it, uh, you know, is it like trade and immigration? I still think we're 
we on the left are somewhat at a loss to understand this phenomenon. And given that this phenomenon may be on its way back scarily, we better be on top of it. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, you know, obviously this, these conversations were having in 17. So some of this may definitely has changed since then. But I, what I kept hearing over and over from people is this idea is we don't like all the rhetoric and the, you know, the bombast, but this guy has not been a part of this, right? They, he's not been a part of politics. He's going to shake things up. We don't maybe like all the things he says, but let's try something different. Somebody who's not part of, you know, this established DC culture that came up. We're right in the middle of a very crucial political moment again in Virginia with the governor's campaign. Uh, and it's from the polls quite close. And from my political sense, I'm real worried. And I think if I had to bet, we'd lose it. I don't ever bet about these things. But um, what's your sense about why it's close? Tell people how to understand what's going on in the governor's race, even though nobody really knows what will happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I will do my best. I think it's a, there's a couple of things happening, and, and you can see it historically. Um, I think people all of Virginia politics understand that it is always tougher uh, for the party that wins the White House the following year. The one person who has broken that trend at all in the last 30 years is uh, actually Governor McAuliffe when he narrowly won in 13. I think that the other thing that's going on is after the last four years, you had Democrats and independents step up in a really big way um, to elect Governor Northam, to reelect Senator Kane and three new members of Congress uh, for Senator Warner and President Biden last year. Maintaining that level of energy, right, after, you know, turning out every single year, uh, also taking back the House of Delegates uh, in 19. Sorry, skip that. I mean, that is a lot of activity where Virginians have stepped up. There's a sense sometimes from people that we got the job done and it, it takes a little bit more motivate, mobilize them. At the end of the day, I, I feel this is going to come down to turnout. The last few Virginia governor's races, I think the turnout was about 47 percent in the Northam race. Um, in the Governor McAuliffe's first race, it was at 43. Um, the year Bob McDonald got elected, it was closer to 40. And then if you look at the years that Warner and Kane won in 01 and 2005, it was about 45, 46%. So, you know, it seems like something around 43% could be the line. It's like, if it's higher than that, I think there's a very good chance that Governor McAuliffe will go back in. I think if we ha end up with a lower turnout, closer to 40, it could be tougher. But I, I, They've got great people working on that campaign. I, I have confidence they're going to do great things, but it's going to be a close race. Do you think that the candidate on the Republican side, Youngkin, has navigated the Trump versus normal person road very well? He is trying. I think it's a. I, I don't know how you can continue that over these next few weeks. How you can kind of fuel this idea about the election results, but also try to appeal to. Uh, the middle, who obviously have not in Virginia, were not happy uh, with a lot of what happened under the Trump administration. I think it's a pretty delicate balance to try to stand on both sides of that fence. And the odds are you're going to fall and it's not good because I just don't know how you hold that up as more and more people are tuning in, how you can maintain that balance. Are the people like Warner getting involved? Senator Warner was out launching canvases in Arlington yesterday. I know that Senator Kane is out on the road doing similar stuff. The great thing about both of those senators is they they very much believe, and I think what uh, Senator Kane always calls it, is that Virginia is the greatest political turnaround of the 21st century. And I think they both want to help to keep that going. 
And I think you'll see them continue to be out there. Virginia seems like there's some aspects to it that make it a microcosm of the country. You mentioned like, well, we kind of felt like we had got the job done and we we turned the state over, but the job of politics is never over. It just keeps going. How do you think the lessons there apply? Because in some sense, people might think we got the job done nationally with the House and Biden and holding Congress now. And yet that can all dissipate in a midterm and in, in another presidential election in no time at all. What do you think the lessons are nationally from what you see in Virginia? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things in my mind about Virginia. And uh, one is I think there's this uh, misconception more broadly that Virginia's become this solidly blue state. It's got a blue tint. Um, and, and this is not necessarily, I guess it'll sound like bragging, but I think that the teams that have been working in Virginia over the last few years that I was a small part of, um, they're incredible people, incredible candidates at the top of the ticket ran really, really hard and built very large campaign programs because they don't believe that Virginia somehow magically become Massachusetts. It's just not the reality. I, I think that people maybe have looked at the success in Virginia over the last few years, and it has been moving towards Democrats more broadly over these last 20 years. But uh, this idea that it's somehow gone in a couple of years from a state that's pretty competitive to just being non-competitive is just a, a false assumption. And also this idea that you always have to be building and maintaining a campaign infrastructure. You have to be, you know, you can't let your foot off the gas ever because that's when things happen and you lose. Some people feel right now that there are hardly any undecided voters and it all is about turnout. Some people feel like there's still quite a few persuadable people that are affected by campaigns. What's your view? I think you have to do both. I, I honestly believe that you have to run, obviously, a comprehensive turnout operation because um, that can change the margins. But I think if you're not also talking to voters in the middle, you lose an opportunity and many times will lose an election. I think there is a balance of that. And, and if you are not comprehensively running both a persuasion operation and a turnout operation, you have a big chance to lose. And I think that, you know, what we've seen in Virginia over these last couple of years is that campaigns that have done both from the governors, the Warner reelection, that they're focused on every corner, trying to reach new voters. And, you know, that helps when, I mean, that's how you take back the house. That's how you pick up seats in Congress and maintain them because you're not just focused on that narrow 50% plus one in democratic base areas. How much do you think the ideology of the candidate matters nowadays? I think it still does matter. I mean, I know that things are much more nationalized. We have a lot less uh, crossover vote, but I think that a candidate has to appeal to the electorate and has to have stances that resonate with the electorate. And I think that that's something you see in Virginia. It's something I used to see in Arkansas, uh, that the kind of Democrat that won in Arkansas is a little bit different than the national Democrat. It's obviously much harder now, but I still think it's important that who the candidate is, what what they stand for resonates with the voters that they're trying to represent. Your career is in what I would call regular politics. Okay. This cyclical battle between the two parties using, you, you know, we have our we have our infrastructure on our side. We have our candidates. We're competing against the other side. But there's something different in the country in the Trump era, which takes us to some degree outside of regular politics. And of course, regular politics continues 
inevitably at the same time. What's different is that the ex-president tried to undo the results of the last election and continues to engage in this propaganda about having had it stolen from him, will run most likely on that alleged steal and has a control over his electorate and his party that I don't think I've seen maybe since Franklin Roosevelt, you know, and I certainly wasn't there to see that. Um, how do you understand this era? Is it regular politics or, or are we in a different time? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Some of the things around President Trump and his actions and his support is, is much different. It's something different than we normally see. I do think that what we saw last year is that after four years of it, the American electorate rejected it. I understand that he has a strong hold over a significant part of the party's base, but if he does move forward and run again, he is not the uh, person who's never been involved in government. He is not this person who's going to bring fresh new ideas and a new way of doing things. Uh, he's got a four-year record where a lot of the people that uh, uh, maybe were mobilized him the first time, maybe their lives aren't tremendously changed and didn't get a big benefit out of what he did. And that's my hope is that we saw after four years, people, you know, people in swing states woke up and places like Georgia that came our way for the first time in Arizona. And we won a few states by a very small amount. Uh, and we, and we, we, you know, I, I think Carville said in, in 92, we, we didn't break the electoral lock. We just picked it. I kind of feel that way. If you look at you know, his chances of winning the nomination right now are quite high. And what happens in regular politics is if the economy is not going well, if you're in a pandemic, if you're in a mess, then the incumbent tends to lose. So you get this guy back in through re regular politics, and then he goes to work doing the things that he does, trying to figure out how to become Putin. How do we stop that? A couple of things. I think one, you know, obviously we've got three years. We will see, you know, I, I'm very hopeful that we will be well beyond this pandemic. We will see the benefits of a lot of these historic investments that we've made. If we can make them. Yes. <laughs> yes. But what we do, you know, with the CARES Act and other things and continue to do early in the year, and hopefully we get some, some couple more big key wins over the next month or two. And I think that that is going to be a really great story for us to tell. Obviously, I agree with you that he, uh, President Trump probably has a pretty strong lock on his base and has a good chance to be the nominee if he decides to run. I am less. You're not so worried about it. I think that the act is going to continue to get old. And I am hopeful that the same people who mobilized, and I know it was close, but the same people who mobilized in 2020 to win, we can build a, continue to build a coalition that's even stronger. And that, you know, he's not going to be quite the unique thing he was in 2016. I'm glad that, that you feel that way about it. I'm more worried. Tell me about this new firm that you've got. What, what are you going to make it into? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a couple of things that, you know, doing some political campaigns on some, some candidates I believe in. I've been doing like what? Um, some, honestly, some mayoral stuff up in Pennsylvania, some, you know, off your elections just got started and going to gear up for the midterms, working in the renewable energy space, kind of helping some companies in the private sector and grow the renewable economy is going to be good, something that I personally want to be involved in. I think it's a great thing. And I, you know, a lot of what I want to focus on is really, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is kind of bringing real world campaign tactics 
tying that into data and analytics and running, maybe really making smart decisions on how to run a campaign. And I think that there's a balance there uh, that we need to achieve to be really successful. Is the firm just you or do you have employees? I have, you know, design team. I've got project-based employees, but I, you know, I am kind of the sole leader of the firm right now. Yeah. Yeah. And is that how you want it to be? Or do you aim to, to grow it to, you know, a staffed firm? You know, I like the idea of being a smaller firm. Uh, I like the idea of taking on the projects that we wanted to, I want to take on and bringing in team members as we need it. Um, you know, I, I kind of like this idea of a boutique firm that really can only focus on things that I'm really passionate about. What is an engagement with you? My role can be anything from like general consultant, helping plan all aspects of a campaign plan to uh, it could be more building field and uh, turnout operations. It, it really kind of depends upon the project and the needs. What would be an ideal client for you? Like I said, I obviously love electing Southern Democrats and, you know, somebody who could do some great things in, in the Southern states. I'm always looking to help folks like that. Um, you know, definitely very excited about continuing to work in the renewable energy space that we've started to work in a lot this year. Um, so I, I think those are two areas that I'm really focused on. Would you step out and run another statewide? You know, I think I'm probably done on my days as a campaign staffer. I've enjoyed every minute of it, but I'm enjoying doing this. When you look around at other campaign managers from, say, 2020, and I mean, you must have seen the landscape of that a little bit. Who else do you think on our side is like a really good campaign manager that you admire? I mean, I thought they did, you know, did great work in Arizona on the Mark Kelly race. Obviously, the teams in Georgia did incredible work. Um you know, both the Warnock and Ossoff teams did incredible work. Um, you know, President Trump helped them a little bit, but I think that they put themselves in a position to win by doing doing the work early. Um, you know, there's some great folks in uh, Virginia, um, you know, uh, that worked. Uh, you know, Elaine Laurie's uh, manager is actually managing the lieutenant governor's race in Virginia this year. Uh, Veronica Ingram, she's did great work. I think there's some incredible talent out there all around the country, honestly. You're claiming this substantial focus on data analytics in your practice. What do you put on the table when you're tackling a problem that has to do with data for one of your clients? Yeah, no, I absolutely would want to make sure I can give a tremendous shout out to somebody I've worked with on a number of projects over the years. And that's David Radloff uh, with Clarity Campaign Labs that we've partnered, partnered on a lot of data and analytics projects that he, we work together on things like the Medicaid expansion in Arkansas to many of the political campaigns I've worked on and working with them on a lot of data analytics projects and kind of using the information and putting them into real world campaign applications. So yeah, that's somebody I would definitely like to highlight is doing incredible work in that space with David Radloff. I've had him on the show uh, and he's a friend also. Um, is there a question that I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked? One of the things that I'd want to highlight, and I, I could use a couple of examples in this idea about how to balance data and real-world campaigning. I'll go back to this Medicaid expansion project we did. We were looking at this. We were um, the Governor Beebe, Democrat. We had a narrowly Republican-controlled legislature. And uh, to pass Medicaid expansion, uh, you, it's a budget bill, so you have to get 75% of both chambers, um, which is pretty difficult to do on an issue like that. Uh, and Governor Beebe came together with some really pragmatic, uh, good Republican leaders in the legislature, and they found a way to make something called a private option that they could get behind. But getting to 75% uh, was going to be a really tough hill. So we went in the field and did some polling and modeling. And, you know, 
identified hundreds of thousands of Arkansans who would be in support of this. But we really looked at the data and said, all right, who we have to win over are going to be these very conservative Republican legislators. And getting a bunch of more liberal activists and hospital administrators who are directly impacted by this probably isn't going to get the job done. And what we're able to find is subsets of pretty conservative voters that supported this for various reasons. And we're able to reach out to them. And those are the folks that started making these outreach calls as this was you know, going up to be voted on in the legislature. And hearing from the right kinds of people. Yeah, the data gave us hundreds of thousands of people who were for this, but making sure we were sending the right people to the legislators that they could impact made a lot of sense. Something else, you know, I've just kind of looked at over the years is sometimes I believe that we let the data completely dominate what we're doing to maybe not using some common sense. You know, I, I heard one of your guests talking about how we're able, from a field perspective, to take basically canvassing packets and take every single one of those to optimize for this is the best packet to reach the voters you need to reach. And you rank order those and send the teams out um, to do that, which is incredibly effective and efficient and makes sense. But I think there's also some real world stuff you can put in place with that. It's like if you have the volunteers to knock all these packets and yes, your highest value packet may be this working class neighborhood that may be much more valuable than this completely low, low income, lower voter turnout packet. But if you're sending somebody out at nine in the morning on a Tuesday, who's more likely to be home? The, the very lowest income voters or the people who work in the, the working class neighborhood? And if you have the, the volunteer base to get all those done, maybe prioritize when you can actually pe- reach people at home. Um, you know, something else you see is that, uh, you know, sometimes first time volunteers are a little bit uh, uh, nervous, even though. I've been out Canvas hundreds of times, and it's always, almost always been a great experience. Or a little bit nervous going to some neighborhoods as opposed to others, and just trying to prioritize where you can get people to do the work and get it done. And just, I just think sometimes just using that real world common sense while the data drives your decisions it helps you run a stronger campaign. When I've talked to some folks in the space, whether they're digital consultants or media consultants, there seems to be a a group that might style themselves reformers that feel like we haven't yet as a party, like we're still a little bit too ruled by the profit motive in our campaigning and how we allocate resources. Certain consultancies, you know, are much more focused on the short term or on their own best interest rather than the long-term best interest of the party and their candidate. If we could do some reforming of our ecosystem, anything that you would suggest? I've been pretty fortunate to work with <laughs> pretty great teams over the last few years. I, I think that there are times that, and they've been willing to make changes. We ran probably the most digital heavy on Senator Warner's reelect, the balance between TV and digital, the most digital heavy campaign uh, we'd ever run in Virginia um, for the Senator's uh, reelect in 2020. And I think that we saw incredible results, not only in him, you know, obviously, that was the right thing to do, you felt? I felt I felt so. I mean, obviously, we need, still need to reach voters through traditional methods. I mean, people are on broadcast TV, but... How do you figure out what the right balance is if you're running a campaign like that? I think we, you have to look at the targets, you look at the electorate and where, where they're at. And I think balance, making those decisions based on where you're going to find people. We did much more work in streaming and digital. Um, not only did we see record turnout, we saw record young voter turnout in Virginia last year. Um, I think 
almost 10 points higher than we had seen. And, and it increased everywhere but across the country. But I thought we saw huge dividends on that investment, uh, not only for us and for obviously President Biden, but you know, we around the country, we lost a lot of those first term House seats uh, last year, unfortunately. And we won all three and all three of those congressmen ran incredible campaigns and are incredible candidates. But I think that us at the top of the ticket helping run a balanced effort that was turning out voters was beneficial to that effort. Do you think that they're at risk this time? You know, I think we will see how everything shakes out. But I, you know, I mean, Congresswoman Wexon's district seems to have gotten a lot safer. And, you know, both Elaine Laurie and Abigail Spanberger are pretty incredible candidates and pretty uh, incredible representatives of their districts. I wouldn't bet against them. It's been interesting to talk to you. Uh, Anything else you want to say? No, I've I've, I've enjoyed it. It was a good conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That was Bruce Sinclair. Bruce is at blue-vanguard.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.